Hello and welcome to the podcast of the Asia chapter of the Asian American Journalists Association. I'm Bill Poorman. And I'm Rebecca Iswara. This is the second in our series leading up to our 10th annual New Now Next conference, or N3Con as we call it, starting on the 27th of August. The theme for this year is the new front lines. As journalists in Asia and across the world try to navigate a world in conflict, from pandemic to protest, from recession to U.S.-China geopolitics. This year's N3Con is virtual, of course, but the program is as strong as ever. We urge you to check it out at n3con.com. Our guest today is an example of the caliber of speaker you'll hear from. Ching Ching Ni is the editor-in-chief of the Chinese-language version of the New York Times. She's based in Beijing. Ching Ching talks about her background and career offering helpful tips on how to stand out while being an up-and-coming journalist, especially if you're interested in working in Asia. Plus, how she made a mid-career switch that led to new journalistic opportunities. She also discusses the challenges women face as journalists and leaders, particularly in Asia, and of course, the ways in which AAJA has helped her throughout her career. I started off our conversation by finding out a bit more about her current role. Can you tell me a little bit about what the Chinese edition of the New York Times is? Is it simply the New York Times in Mandarin? Good question. Um, You know, I've been doing this for a long time. I started out in journalism uh, covering China for the Los Angeles Times. And back then... There is no uh, Chinese edition of American journalism, as far as I know. And so the New York Times now um, is able to publish key stories and in Chinese is really something that I am very proud to be part of. Um, basically, it uh, we curate some of the best um, of New York Times journalism but um, mostly uh, stories that are connected to China. And so um, we pick and choose every day and we try to present that to the Chinese language speaking audience, which is a huge audience. However, it's very difficult to reach them these days um, given the various censorship that um, is ongoing here in China. So, um, but it is still an incredible opportunity to share the best of New York Times journalism with the Chinese language speaking world. So that's basically in a nutshell what we do. Now, how long have you been in this role? I have been in this role about five years now. Well, and could you briefly tell your story about how you got to this position? Yeah, so I uh, I jumped the gun a little bit. I said I started my career at the LA Times in China. Well, there was a lot of that came before that because it's not exactly easy to get to that point. Um, but, but the context of being in China, I started my career in China uh, at the LA Times here. But it, 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 this was like not an easy thing to get to that point. And I, um, for our uh, younger audience who are just starting out in the business, I want to share a little bit um, of how I got here. Um, because a lot of people want to come to China. A lot of people want to be a reporter in China. It's, it's still really, really difficult. Um, I, um, myself, never thought I would become a journalist because um, I was born in China and grew up in the U.S. and California in the 80s. 
and you know, it took me a long time to learn English. My mother um, hardly spoke any English, and she was a single parent, and um, we didn't have any journalism in our lives. And um, in fact, you know, my my mother, my family, they're all musicians, so. I uh, and I'm the only person without any musical talent, so uh, <laughs> I really had to find something else to do with my life. And um, but in America, if you didn't speak English, you you kind of like are not going to be successful in life. And you know, we didn't speak English for a long time, and so everything was extra hard for for me and for my family. So how did I go from that, like to you know journalism? It's you know one of those things. I I say you know there are like people in your lives that come in to help you in unexpected ways. So when I finally made it to college, I uh, was a very quiet person. I never th- wanted to speak up. I was always afraid I would say the wrong thing. Um, but it, of course, you know I still had a lot of opinions, right? And it's not true that I don't talk a lot uh, amongst my friends. And um, uh, one of these sort of moments. For me, it was that, you know, in college, like my first year or second year, there's this guy that I barely knew. He heard me talking all the time. Every day he would say, why don't you write something? Why don't you write something? I was like, stop nagging me. Stop nagging me. You don't know me and you don't, you don't know my fears. But he kept saying that every day, you know, in the cafeteria line, why don't you write something, write something. And so one day I did, you know, I wrote something and it was an incredible moment for me. I guess I um, realized that I, my language didn't have to be perfect, but I had to have something to say. I think um, back then that was a really, really profound moment for me to get up the courage to write something and have it be read. So that's kind of how I learned what journalism is and how I might be a part of it. But th- that's a long time from that to like getting a job, you know. <laughs> Um, in journalism, and that was just college, right? It doesn't, you know, you can write whatever you want. And just to write it was like a bright, an act of bravery and courage in itself for me, right? You know, I have this unique experience. I wanted to uh, tell my story and the stories of the people around me, but I didn't know how to do that. Uh, after college, I went to graduate school in international affairs because I got a fellowship and it was free. So I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And I figure if I couldn't find a job, I might as well just go to, you know, grad school. It's a job. It's free. Let me just do that. And um, a lot of people probably do that. But for me, I learned very quickly that it's not what I wanted to do. It was just so difficult for me to get into the subject. And um, very luckily and coincidentally, I took a class at the journalism school at Columbia. And it just like blew my mind. Well, I didn't really know how journalism works, right? I didn't know that you can, you know, spend your life going out there and getting stories and telling stories about people and places that maybe only you cared about or you, no one else would know about unless you told them about it. And that, you know, school was all about going out to New York and doing that and bringing it back and having people teach you how to, you know, shape that story and tell that story in a compelling way. And I just thought, oh, my God, this, this is what I want to do with my life. This is, you know, my gosh, somebody's going to train me to do that. So I, um, I ended up taking, up, uh, uh, taking out a big loan to support myself through journalism school. Because, as you know, they don't give you a lot of scholarships in journalism schools. And so it was a lot of money. It's the biggest loan I've ever taken in my life because, you know, we grew up poor. I didn't have any money. And it was all scholarships for everything that I've done and this was like I got to do this for myself and I did it and it was the best investment I ever made 
<laughs> and then what happened? And it's easy to get into school. It's a lot harder to get your first job. And I was very lucky, you know, talking about diversity. I, I, I am a big beneficiary of, you know, diversity because my background, you know, I, although I love journalism, it doesn't, doesn't mean I have a lot of experience in it. I didn't have any clips. I didn't have any, you know, internships. And so it would be very difficult for someone like me to get in the door of a major news organization in America. But uh, I was very lucky to get into a very competitive and very wonderful minority journalism training program called Metpro. And um, it's run by the Los Angeles Times, by the then Times, Times Mirror Company. And it was a year-long training program. It really changed my life because, you know, without that training program, I wouldn't have been able to get into the industry and sort of... Um, as soon as I did and learn so much and do so much. But I have to tell you, my very first full-time job after this training program from the LA Times, it's kind of dramatic because I got my first, my dream job was to come back to New York, to work in New York for a big metropolitan newspaper. And, and doesn't anybody want to do that, right? And of course, like in, I just couldn't believe that I got my first job at New York Newsday. And I worked at New York Newsday for one week, I wrote one story, and they killed the paper. <laughs> and I was, oh, no. I was the last person they hired, and I would have been the first person out the door. Uh. And so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I, and you would think that I would have learned from that. It's a huge blinking light. Get out of the business. Oh, Get out of oh the no. Business, right? <laughs> Um, but I was like, oh, what's going on? I, I, I didn't have a plan B. I didn't know what to do with my life. This was like, I put all my eggs in this one basket. Hmm. And so um, I was very lucky because Newsday had a, a sister publication called Long Island Newsday. Well, not sister. They are the same company. They had an addition on Long Island. I was able to move to that job, you know, because a lot of people left. And it, it was a moment where a lot of people saw the writing on the wall and basically fled the business. Right, the guy that sat next to me, like he just booked a flight to Africa or something. Like he wanted to finally, this was a moment for him to do what he really wanted to do with his life. Huh. Right. And um, I had just gotten started. I didn't know what else to do. So I went to Long Island. It wasn't my dream job, but I learned so much. Right. The local journalism, the local news, the cop speed. You know, I covered education, police. Um, town hall, town government, immigration, and a lot of breaking news, things that, you know, we don't think is glamorous, but is really sort of the foundation of what, you know, the bigger, much bigger journalism is all about. So I was very, very grateful that I had that opportunity to continue. And basically, that is how I launched my career, not these like quick breaks, but this sort of steady, you know, go and do do your, you know, town hall meeting, go to your late night board meetings and, you know, explain what is going on in these smaller communities in America. So I really appreciate that experience. So what did eventually get you to back to China? Yeah, so, right, right. For me, how I did it was I um, uh, needed to make sure and that everyone knew that I had a dream and it's to go back to China, to cover China, right? So that they know that this is what you want to do. And then the second thing is that do everything you can 
to show them that you're willing to go the extra mile. Not just that you want to get there, but how are you going to get there? Yeah. So a couple things that I did when I was young and no one would consider sending me overseas is that I sent myself <laughs> in the sense that, you know, for my summer vacation, for example, uh, it was a Hong Kong handover in 1997. How long time ago I happened to be there that summer. And so that when our official correspondent needed help, they, everybody was desperate for help. And that was the biggest story of the year. And it was very hard to get translators and assistants because everybody has been taken up. And I happened to be there. And of course, um, I was able to help out and, you know, get on the front page of one of the biggest stories of the, of the year, right? And so uh, another time I also on summer vacation, I went back to China to see my grandmother, you know, I have two grandmothers, one from the city, one from the village. And I never really got to know my village side of the family. And I was supposed to go there and see her, but she died uh, the day I arrived. Mm. And so I ended up spending my whole vacation stuck in this little village with my extended family on this very like unexpected funeral ritual that lasted 10 days. Or something like that, really long, like a long stretch where we couldn't go anywhere. So I took the time to learn all about my extended family and I turned that into a long magazine piece for Newsday. Mm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that piece really changed the way my editors saw me, you know, as the, the young kid who sent you sent out to the police shooting or whatever, plus something small, not a police shooting small, but you know, breaking news and and hard news uh, rather than something longer, more thoughtful. And from overseas, right? And so uh, these are sort of ways that you put yourself out there. You not only raise your hand, but you show them, you know, what you can do. And so, yeah, I was young and I was really hungry. So those are good things to have when you're young and, you know, when you need to build experience and clips. Because I kept doing things like that, um, when uh, one day when the, the Los Angeles Times was looking for someone uh, for their Shanghai Bureau at the time, you know, a lot of people remember me and asked me to apply. And I was very lucky, you know, after a lot. And by the way, you know, there's so many AAJ connections, you know. I will say, you know, if you ask me why AJ, how important is AJ, you know, AAJ has been there for me at every step of my career. Really, like one of my biggest interviews happened at an AJ convention. Um, and all these meetings that you, you wish you could have, that you wouldn't have an opportunity to have happen at some AJA event. When I was at, at the journalism school, you know, I sort of glide over it like it's so easy. It's, it was horribly hard for me. And I almost couldn't make it. You know, I loved it. It doesn't mean it loved me, right? <laughs> I love journalism, but journalism was hard as hell, man. It didn't love me back. <laughs> I, I couldn't get it like you know um yeah and also everybody in my class was so good at it already they all have experience in the field and mm. you know they they, they they know what they were doing I, and i was brand new like i hardly ever read the newspaper before that mm. i'm sorry it's just true like when you're disadvantaged or you come from a you know immigrant family we don't spend money to buy the newspaper that mm. we don't understand right mm -hmm. so i don't even know what a story is like what a what a newspaper article structure is what should be in it and how it should sound. So, so can you imagine I'm competing with these other super competitive people who've already had great internships. And so, yeah, it beat me to death, right? And <laughs> I uh, didn't really know if I could make it. And then um, that is where I met my first AJA uh, member and mentor and friend for life. Hmm. 
Um, yeah. So her name is Wendy Lynn. I love her. And she's still my friend. She lives in New York still. And, you know, she was my adjunct professor and mm -hmm. she saw how I struggled. She helped me. She held me by the hand. She told me not to give up. And she introduced me to a community of other AAJA members, right? Like-minded people who, you know, really was there to support me. I went there every weekend, like every month we had a meeting. I always went there. Well, I mean, God, I can't believe there's all these other people like me, although they weren't probably struggling the way I was struggling. But, I, you know, it was so great to meet them and to know that there is support when I need it and for them to, like, whisper opportunities to me, you know, give me advice on things that, you know, really to catch up on, you know, all the things, opportunities that I didn't have before. My fellow AAJ members really made up the difference. And I feel, like, so, so enriched um, by my experience of participating as a young student, you know, just, like, opening my eyes to everything, listening to everything. And and then later on to be able to work with these, you know, some of the more experienced colleagues. It was incredible. So I got to aid um, to China because, you know, along the way at every AJ meeting, somebody will pull me and say, hey, you need to meet this person. You need to meet that person. You need to go hear this. You need to hear that. And then finally there was a meeting, you know, a chance to meet the foreign editor of the Los Angeles Times. And that meeting happened at uh, AJA, and he happens to be one of the biggest supporters of AJA, Simon Lee, you know, financially and in terms of his time energy to groom, to cultivate, to mentor young journalists like myself, you know, like he hires all these Pulitzer Prize winning experienced journalists, and then he would talk to someone like me because AJA gave him a platform and made me an opportunity to meet someone like him. You know, so we can engage and he can believe in me because there is the power of the whole organization behind me saying, hey, you know, believe in people like changing me. <laughs> it's true. It's amazing. Uh, and, and so from there, then you went to the New York Times? So, no, I mean, my life is kind of long by now. Uh, once upon a time, I was young. But um, so I, I uh, covered China for the Los Angeles Times for um, um, uh, nearly a decade. Um, and I didn't expect that to last that long either. So I'm so grateful. It was like such a life-changing experience to come back to China and cover China. But I have to say, you know, uh, in terms of advice, you know, you have to look at the long trajectory of your career. Um, I was very lucky to have uh, my dream job very early on, early on for me, because these days, uh, very young journalists are coming out to Asia doing an amazing job. And boy, I'm so glad to meet them and see them doing great work. But for me, the journey was a lot longer and harder for um, because of where I had started from. After being actually working out of China and I um, started to feel like I wanted a change. Part of it is that I, um, uh, I don't know if I should, should share, like, you know, when I left China, there was, um, I was covering one of the toughest stories, uh, probably my career, which was the Sichuan earthquake right mm -hmm. before the Olympics. So it was such a contrast that year in 2008, you know, you have this, great big party of China coming out for the Olympics. Then you have this this sort of national tragedy of this earthquake that killed all these children. Yeah. And, um, you know, after a while, I um, the excitement just of telling stories, it 
was starting to wear out for me and I was very um, traumatized by the um, the earthquake coverage and seeing all the mm. children, the dead children. And I was a, also a young mother then. Mm. I just couldn't handle it anymore. And I thought I needed a break. And you will come to that point in your career where you need to reflect on you know, what you want to do next. Some people can do this for their entire careers and some people are very lucky that they can do that. And other people must make, must make a choice about, you know, what is it that you want to do? And I had to think long and hard about what I wanted to do. So I was very lucky I had a chance to go back to the States to a fellowship to sort of think and um, sort of reset. And one of the amazing things that happened just to cut a little bit further down the road is that I found this great opportunity and very rare opportunity to come back to China again, but in a completely different capacity as a, uh, an academic at a Chinese journalism school. Mm. I was hired to teach, um, but I ended up being promoted to associate dean and running global programming, taking students around the world, doing amazing things I never thought I would get to do. That was a really important turning point in my career because for the longest time, uh, you know, I understand that working for an American newspaper means that I am telling stories about China to an, an American audience in English. That was very clear. This is why, you know, I said, well, I can never imagine that there will be a Chinese edition of the New York Times because when I was working at the LA Times, nobody, you know, could read what I write, mm. right? So it's a one-way conversation, not a conversation, it's a one-way. I'm writing about you for them. But I, you know, being born, someone who was born in China, who is really both of China and of America, you know, I really wanted there to be a conversation and it was not possible when everything was in English, when everything was dominated by American media. And so to work, to come back to China as an academic, I really saw myself as helping groom the next generation of Chinese journalists so they can go out there and tell their own stories, right? And I thought that was really important to me that I got to do that. Of course, like instead of teaching them, I felt like they had a lot more to teach me. And that was a moment in my career, that a turning point in my career uh, where I went from a print journalist, like I told you, I don't know how to do anything except write, you know, and suddenly I, I entered this world where these young people knew everything, multimedia, like all the stuff that we're doing now, they were doing and teaching me. You know, I didn't even have a smartphone back then. My first smartphone like was when I, you, you know, you work in China, you gotta be on Weibo, WeChat, I didn't even know what those things were, okay? Hmm. And you have to have a, engage, you have to build your brand, you have to do public speaking, you have to sell your ideas to the students, the young generation of Chinese, they don't just take it, you know? You have to pitch it to them, you have to convince them. And you have to manage people. You had, you know, I had a staff. I was running, you know, I was, you know, sitting in meetings where I'm often the only woman. Like all these things prepared me for the moment when the New York Times needed somebody to lead their Chinese operation to turn the amazing journalism that they do into Chinese language, right? So I think that if I hadn't gone on this detour, 
uh, to Chinese, ac Chinese academia. I don't think I could really take on this current role, which is way more complex. The stakes are way higher than anything I've ever done before. It's an amazing story, really. I mean, you, you found mentors along the way and created your own opportunities along the way. And that's a pretty powerful combination. And it, it's fantastic to see. Um, you know, you did mention that you were the only woman in the room in that one case. I'm just curious, what obstacles do you think, if any, that you've encountered uh, as a woman in your field or as a woman in your field in Asia in particular? Anything in that regard? Yeah. yeah. So it, this is interesting. Like in Asia, um, of course, in any positions of power, in any boardroom, in any, you know, important meeting, I learned that I'm usually the only woman or one of two or three when there's a huge, you know, huge room of people. And I think that, that uh, you know, when I was a reporter, I don't really get to see, I don't really get to see because I'm not really in the room where it happens, right? But I got to see this and I think it was not just to see it. I, I didn't really know. It was very difficult to know what to say all the time, oftentimes, you know, how to make your voice heard. And that's also the case throughout my career, right? It seems like it's easy to be vocal, but actually it's not. And in, in Asia, it's a lot harder. You know, when I was a, a reporter, oftentimes if I show up at something, people always assume if there are other men around or especially white men around, they just always assume that I'm the, the assistant, right? Or the <laughs> translator. And, um, you know, even more recently, when I'm, I'm the editor-in-chief of the New York Times and I go, I'm invited to go do a speech at, at some university. And, you know, we go in to meet with the dean, you know, to chit-chat and the dean would only talk to the only man in, the, in my, on my team. And he's a white man, right? And you only look at him. You would only address him. And like, I'm not even there. Even today? Yes, yes. This was like a year or two ago, right? Wow. Well, yes. I think that they didn't bother to figure out who the speaker is or whatever, right? Or that they didn't think because there's a white man in the room, they just automatically, you know, uh, speak to him. This is like, hmm. and, and, and if it's not a white man, it's probably a man they would prefer to talk to. Some of it is cultural. Uh, when a man speaks to you, they don't want to look you in the eye. They would look at a man. They can't look at you. Sometimes when I show up as an American correspondent for Los Angeles Times or whatever, you know, they will like look at my institution's name and they look up at me and they look again. It's like, where is my white man? I, I want a white man. Why is this Asian woman standing for me? You get that all the time. But you have to say, well, I'm Chinese American. You, I constantly have to qualify. Why do I have to qualify? I am what I am. I deserve to be here. So don't question me. Okay. But here in this world, you... You know, you constantly have to, I don't have to bring my passport. I mean, that's the number one mm. thing. Like, well, I used to live in the government compound here as a foreign correspondent, right? And I can't walk into my own home because without a passport. They let all the white people in. They let everyone in. You know, they let people of all races in. They just won't let any Chinese people in. They won't let anybody with a Chinese face in. So I have to constantly bring my passport because my face... Uh, it's not enough or my face, I can't get through the door with my face, whereas a white person can, their face is their passport. Hmm. And so that's a constant, constant thing, even probably today. Although the times have changed a little bit, there's a lot of nationalism against foreigners now, but that's a, a different kind of level of complexity that is operating here in China. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Those are 
you know, those are amazing stories, but also fully expected, sadly, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, these are the things that, so this, this is why you need, you know, diversity in the newsroom so you can have people like me tell, tell you stories like that, right? If only, if the LA Times and New York Times only send white people out here, they wouldn't have these stories to be able to share with you. So, you know, we, we experienced something totally different here. And, you know, if we weren't here, you wouldn't know about these things. So I'm glad I can help. <laughs> well, what do you make of the state of diversity in the newspaper industry? Um, because it has traditionally been white, male, and higher educated, right? Um, kind of three different things going on there. What do you make of the state of diversity in the industry right now? So in the U.S. and China is a little bit different story. I think in the U.S. is an ongoing challenge. I, I think that, uh, you know, the program that I was in is incredible. But why aren't there more programs like that? Right. And how many people that they bring in the door actually stay inside and grow and thrive? That's a big question. Right. It's one thing to bring people in. It's another to retain them to really make sure that they grow, that they contribute. Um, I think that, you know, probably without an organization like AHA, I don't know if I would have grown or I would have stayed. You know, if I didn't see like-minded people, if I didn't see other people believing in me, I don't know if I have the courage to do this alone. Hmm. Um, so I think that America has a long ways to go in terms of diversity. Um, but in terms of my experience here in Asia, it's very interesting. You know that when I was teaching journalism, and the one thing that's really funny is almost all my students are young women, right? Young people who choose journalism are most likely to be women. But yet, when you go out into the boardrooms, right, into the leadership positions, all the top editors, they're almost all men, right? And so the, the idea here is not so much a racial issue, but a gender issue and a, and a serious one because, you know, a lot of young women, there's just no way for them to make it to positions of power in their newsrooms. And also, you know, it's really funny. My students told me uh, they don't even know why they're in journalism school because they, like me, they didn't even know what journalism was and they had to pick something in high school and then they ended up, you know, studying journalism. And the only journalism they ever saw is like maybe CCTV or some kind of broadcasting. That to them is like the end of journalism, right? And these day and age, you know, to be a journalist, it's low paying, high risk, and one of the things that the young women always told me is that you can't find a husband. Oh. <laughs> so, because people don't want you to have a high-risk, low-paying, you know, like labor-intensive job, right? Uh -huh. That doesn't have a future, hmm. right? So, and so for them, that's a real turnoff. So these really smart young women who acquire all these skills, they are not likely to go into the business in any serious way. That's a big problem, hmm. right? So for me, like um, the biggest, the challenge in the industry is how do we attract, right, the, the brightest minds of today and how do, we, uh, how do we make sure that they have room to grow and to contribute? So, I mean, that's a huge challenge. Well, do you have a, an idea for a solution there or something that you're doing at the New York <laughs> Times right now that is helping um, to overcome some of those difficulties? So, you know, here in China, you know, I, I, I did what I could, you know, I went into academia, but it's a lot harder here to do anything on your own. This is where I connect the dots, right? Bring my students together with my AJA community, right? I try to introduce them 
to you know our conventions, our N3, uh, con, our AJ regular meetings and various workshops to give them any and all opportunities that they may not have if I hadn't introduced it to them, just like when I was coming up, right? And, but I really think that, you know, we, each person individually has a responsibility to pull someone up who are struggling or who needs that one opportunity. And then we need organizations like AJ, right? We can't do this alone. We need the power of the organization. We need a diversity of people who support us, people like you, people like me, you know, who believe in the importance of this. Because you can't count on all the editors in the newsrooms to do this. It's a, we speak much louder with the community, with an organization. And then we need to show them, look at how far we have come and look at all the people that we've supported who have come through this. And now, you know, AJ, even, you know, now that AJ has an Asia chapter, it's incredible. You know, we're able to really bring on the smartest young people in Asia who are bilingual, who really understands the story, who understand Asia and who are trained in the West or have connections from both worlds, these are the people that we need to bring into the industry so that we are not always listening only to the stories of, you know, very talented white colleagues who are discovering Asia for the first time or, you know, as they say, oh, fresh eyes. That's great that you have fresh eyes, but we also need, you know, firsthand experiences and people who really understand because they are deeply steeped in this culture and this history. Well, I moved to Singapore six years ago and got involved with AAJA um, because famously the joke is you can be Asian American or a journalist yes. and any of them will do. So at least I, I qualify as an American yes. to be in the yes. group. Yes, and, um, yes. From the amount of energy and expertise uh, and knowledge and talent that I've encountered uh, in meeting people through the AAJA network uh, has just been incredible. And uh, it's, it's exciting to be around, right? To be around people who show so much promise and are delivering every day on that promise. It's, it's, it's really a wonderful experience. It's great, yes. Um, I agree. So uh, for one last uh, item, just to broaden it out a little bit more to the industry as a whole, which uh, the journalism industry has been in a... Uh, a state of crisis for a long, long time, it seems, but it just keeps on coming. I wonder if you have any thoughts about uh, the future of the industry as a whole and um, either good trends or, or not so good trends that you might see. Yeah, um, I'm very worried. Um, I'm very worried for, for someone whose first job lasted only one week. <laughs> yes. You know, <laughs> I've been worried for 25 years, right? Um, and we should be, right? We should be. And when I was younger, I couldn't do more, right? When I was younger, I was trying to make sure that I get through the door. And now we need to make sure that the building stands for the younger people behind us, right? And I'm not sure that we can make sure. I mean, I'm not sure because, you know, since I started in this business, how many hundreds of newsrooms have closed around the country just in the United States, not to mention the rest of the world? How many thousands of journalists have lost their jobs? And how do you encourage young people to uh, go into a dying business? It, these are serious questions. You can't just say, hey, we need you. You need to serve us. You need to serve the higher calling. You know, 
young people have to make a living. They have to support their families. You know, not everybody can afford to have a noble cause, right? These are serious questions. But I, I, I don't have answers. I think the most important thing is that we keep asking these questions instead of ignoring them. You know, like when I was going into the business, like I was running into a burning building. Like I just closed my eyes, run in, right? <laughs> um, I, I Now that I'm older, I can't do that because I'm not alone anymore, right? I have children. I have a whole young generation of people before, behind me. I want to encourage my own daughter to go into journalism. Mm. And I want to be able to say that this is something that, you know, that has real promises. I don't want to sacrifice her because I had a dream. You know, it needs to be her dream and she needs to understand how important it is. And then she and all the young people coming up, you guys need to figure out the solution, right? The world belongs to you. So you guys know all the gadgets and technologies and all the new things that we never heard of, right? I'm doing a job that I never heard of, like when I was starting out. And I have to learn quickly. And not all of us can learn so quickly, but I'm trying. We are all trying. And we want to work with you and together, you know, let's, let's create a vision for a new tomorrow that is not grounded on the foundation of a dying industry from before, right? We need to come up with something new and be hopeful. And I guess, you know, if this is your last question, I want to end on a, you know, a, a hopeful note in the sense that, yes, there's terrible things are happening. Yet, yes, the industry is dying. Yes, there's just like protests all over the world because the world is so unfair. But we also live in one of the most exciting times of our lives, of the world, you know, and those of us who are in Asia, who are in China, this is such an incredible opportunity to cover and to understand one of the biggest stories in the world. And this moment, you know, of the pandemic, of crisis, social crisis, and all these things that I thought my gosh, only my parents, my grandparents' generations go through these huge upheavals that I only read about in books, right? But we are going through them right now in real time. And you can record it all on your phone. It's incredible, right? So you don't need the New York Times. You don't need the LA Times. You know, there will be people who serve those media, huge, you know, traditional outlets. But you can pick up your phone just like I'm telling my daughter, you know, my teenage daughter, pick up your phone, record what's happening in your world right now, today. You know, this is how you change the world. And because we're stuck at home, even she's learning to do that because she like, likes to read books. You know, she wasn't interested. You know, not all young people like technology. But you know what? We all have to adapt. We all have to learn on the spot. We all are responsible for coming up with solutions and we can't just count on other people to do that for us how's that for an answer <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful <laughs> ching ching ni editor-in-chief of the chinese edition of the new york times thank you so much for your time and and your insights and uh your inspirations uh for, thank for you. all of us great to be here thank you so much thanks again to ching ching ni for joining us and again we hope you'll join us for the upcoming 10th annual N3Con, hosted by AAJA Asia, starting on the 27th of August. This year, it's virtual, of course, and you can find the whole program at n3con.com. And we'd like to hear from you regarding the podcast, too. You can reach out to us at aajaasiapodcast at gmail.com. Please subscribe as well so that you don't miss an episode. I'm Bill Porman. And I'm Rebecca Iswara. Stay safe.